0: MPP, it's like another strategy of like deterrence. I mean, you're basically, what I've been seeing is like, day by day, they just cut down one more lifeline for people. Out of the families that really do come from serious situations, persecuted for their faith, nationality or race or whatever, um, they have a chance and it's a very sad, unfortunate and unjust thing that they won't be able to cross into safety and maybe turn back and sent to their deaths just because there wasn't a lawyer there to represent them.
1: Welcome to Beyond Soundbites. I'm Jacob Mel. This podcast is built around the idea that every single person we call refugee, migrant, or asylum seeker is created in God's image and loved by Him with a depth we cannot comprehend. In this episode, we continue exploring the factors that contribute to migration from Honduras. So far, we have met Senora Malvia, who spends her time and energy caring for the families of migrant people, often including returnees who have been deported back from the U.S., and Alexander, a coffee farmer who made the journey north in hopes of being able to provide for his wife and kids. Now we'll hear about one program in one neighborhood that seeks to embolden more Hondurans to support the next generation not through migration, but by staying put and fighting for the good of their communities. Then we'll widen the lens to see how that work interplays with national and regional forces. neighborhood of Tegucigalpa called Nueva Suyapa, at an intersection that was years ago under the firm control of the infamous 18th Street gang, a banner is stretched in front of a school printed with Psalm 3414. Nueva Suyapa seeks the peace and pursues it. About 30 young people pass out pamphlets and invite passers-by to pen their signatures on the banner with a sharpie. Ramona Cruz, Victor Sanchez, Carmen Garcia, Jose Mariana, Belinda Torres, In the corners of the banner, it reads, Peace is being treated with dignity and respect. Peace is to live in an environment of harmony and tranquility. The event is part of a program called Strong Communities that focuses on young people. We spoke briefly with Sandra, one of the leaders. (laughs)
2: <laughs> tengo 13 años de trabajar en esta institución. Um, been in for years. Wow. has no en la primera generación, hemos sacado generaciones ya uh-huh. hace un tiempo. So not the first generation of kids
3: that work, have we worked, we've worked with many generations. Wow.
2: Ah, tenemos, usted fue testigo, ¿verdad? Que fuimos a entrevistar sí. a uno en sí. la Naval. entonces Eso. tengo soportes en España, en Estados Unidos, en la en la naval, entonces Es como ya una escuela de vida. Sí, so it's like a, a life school
3: that I'm in Virginia. I have kids that are in, in Spain, in the US. I was with her when we went to go see like someone who's basically como su hijo, like someone who's like her son, uh. who's currently um, training to be in the Navy. And he's wow. just like, like
2: her golden child, like an example of how far like, a child can go when they have school.
1: Sandra pointed out one young woman in the group of kids who started attending what they call the Impact Club when she was in elementary school.
2: Uh, okay. Okay.
3: So the one with like, um, longer black suits, So she started as an Impact child, Went up
1: to a, became a
2: follow-up kid, and now she's a volunteer helping us with the younger kids. Wow. So like, they become leaders Wow. Mm-hmm. See, so. sí, and so these kids, they're all doing something. You know, they're going
3: to school, they're learning a trade, but they're active, they're doing something. Que son más que otros. There are some groups of kids that are more difficult than others. Mm-hmm. Sí.
2: Los míos, como soy una dictadora, pero con mucho cariño. Entonces no Well,
3: my kids they behave well since I'm a dictator, so.
2: the jóvenes. Cuidado, mi amor, quítese de ahí.
1: What we witnessed was just a tiny aspect of the Strong Communities program. The clubs were functioning in five different neighborhoods. They begin for young people at age nine. They do group activities that build a culture of peace. They form community monitoring groups to hold local schools and clinics accountable to meeting basic standards of service. We'll hear more about this in a minute. And they help the kids form connections and relationships with leaders like Sandra, as well as other community volunteers. These connections are designed to protect young people from risk factors. In other words, to carve out another pathway for young people besides the three Senora Malvia described in the last episode joining the maras, selling drugs, or leaving. Sandra told us, the need is so great. I don't just see the kids Friday and Monday during our meetings. Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Christmas Day, Holy Week. Every day, really. <laughs>
2: definitivamente no me puedo liberar de ellos. <laughs>
3: sí. So, I just like, I'm not really ever going to like get free from them. Ah.
1: Hay ocasiones
2: <laughs> que que son de noche y se les muere la <laughs> abuela uh, o el tío o alguien y me van a buscar a las <laughs> 11 uh-huh. de la noche, y mi mamá me dice, "¿Para dónde vas? ¿Qué te van a tocar?" No, no, y si me toca, no me toca. Entonces sienten como como un refugio, como como alguien que los apoya. Entonces, ¿qué hago? Irme. There are times
3: when it's 11 p.m. at night and they <laughs> <laughs> And they're calling me because their aunt so died. Or their uncle died, and they need my support. They're looking for me. And my mother is like, Why are you leaving the house so night? Someone's gonna. Why are you leaving the house so late? Someone's gonna hurt you. And she's like, Well, this is my like, this is my life. This is my work. Um, uh-huh. And I feel like I'm a refuge. I'm a safe uh-huh. place uh-huh. for these children. Um, uh-huh. I'm, and I'm here for them. Uh-huh.
1: I asked Sandra how she has balanced the work with the youth in addition to raising her own kids.
3: tengo dieciocho claro I problems well, I
2: trouble with well, my kids because well, I have a, a teenage son who's say 8, uh, he's uh, 18, who's eighteen <laughs> <laughs> and he says that I love these children more than him <laughs> porque hace unos años, pequeño, uh-huh. este, yo lo traía a las reuniones verdad a pelear con los niños uh-huh. Pero a Entonces, so, from a very young age, like, I would bring him to the clubs while I was teaching. Like,
3: and he was—he liked to fight with other kids. He'd always get in fights, and i had to separate them, i had to put them outside. I'm like, you're being a bad example for these children.
2: siempre <laughs> <laughs> yeah, And these children were very small. I like, the fights would always a very merienda? <laughs> Entonces les digo yo, bueno si sobra una les digo yo que es la mía te la doy, pero si no no. Ay mira dice que preferirías preferirías que busquen comida en tu casa y niños que no tienen comida debería de entender, y hacer conciencia. Sí. Pero eso fue como bien terrible para mí porque a mí me dice siempre me que 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 yo quiero más estos hipotes que ellos. Estos me están llamando y que no sé qué, que no sé cuánto y dicen ya están esos micos, díganle que está de menos, que ya está fuera del trabajo. So del bichar, so it's snack time and they always give out food to children who don't have consistent food to eat, so they
3: always have a snack for them. Uh-huh. And so he'd be like, her son would be like, well, do I guess now too? And she's like, well, if there's one left over, that the one that's mine, I will give it to you. And he's like, what? All these other children get food. They love these children more than me. And she's like, well, no, you have to be conscientious that like we have food in our house, we will be fine. You can have food later on. These children may not. But mm-hmm. so that has caused, you know, tension because he says that I love the other kids more than him. So it's complicated.
2: It's complicated. I vamos
1: The word complicated came up often during our time in Honduras. In Sandra's situation, it seemed like an understatement. She went on to tell us how she sometimes has to cross gang territories in order to do home visits with some of the kids, that they sometimes work with kids who have become drug mules for the gangs, and the gangs take issue with them for interfering. They see us as a threat because those kids are a resource to them, she said. But so far, we're good. Nothing bad has happened to us. The Strong Communities programs are just one initiative of a larger organization called the Association for a More Just Society, AJS, or ASJ in Spanish. AJS started in 1998 and currently employs 90 Honduran staff and a few Americans. The woman interpreting during my conversation with Sandra was Comfort Sampong, a research and communication specialist with AJS. In addition to localized programs like the one Sandra helps to run, the AJS team of lawyers, investigators, psychologists, and other professionals has taken on issues of high-level corruption and mismanagement in almost every sector. Education, healthcare, the police and judicial systems, land rights, and others. Co-founder Kurt Verbeek, an American who has lived in Honduras since 1986, shared about the philosophy that drives their work.
4: Many organizations that work in Honduras and other similar countries often call themselves human rights organizations, and what that means is that they're trying to defend basic human rights. So, you know, the the right to not be killed is the right to life is one basic right. But my term actually might be that we are all made in God's image, right, and it doesn't matter who you are, right? If, if everyone we are dealing with is made in God's image, then they, they deserve a certain level of treatment. And if we're talking about our own children are made in God's image and we want the best for them, education, health care, security, a, a young child in Honduras is also made in God's image, just as my child, children are, and we want those same opportunities for them.
1: How does this conviction play out on the ground in a country like Honduras? Here's one example. Historically, Honduras has had one of the highest per capita education costs of any Latin American country, even though its students were performing among the lowest on test scores. In 2010, AJS led a coalition that equipped parents and volunteers in local communities to monitor their school's activities. Through the hard, persistent work of these local leaders, monitoring revealed that a quarter of teachers on government payroll were collecting checks for classes they weren't even showing up to teach. Some had died and their families were still cashing their checks. Some had left the country. Pause for a minute here and think about the outrage this would cause in your own community. Eventually, as a result of these efforts, the government removed 15,000 so-called ghost teachers from the system. AJS's monitoring groups continue today in education and healthcare. During the pandemic, they have played an important role in keeping neighborhoods informed and connected to local health clinics.
4: I think when you see broken institutions, schools that aren't working, a police system that has been corrupted or or is sometimes actually a, a tool of organized crime, you see how it affects almost always the poor first And it it robs people of their right to be treated as made in God's image. And that ought to bother all of us.
1: HAS has worked alongside churches and other nonprofits to address corruption in many other ways. Their past efforts resulted in the purging of 5,000 corrupt police officers, almost 40% of the entire national police force at the time. Another investigation led to the arrest I mentioned last episode of 13 high-ranking officials who used fraudulent purchasing schemes to siphon a billion and a half dollars from the Ministry of Health into their own companies. More recently, AJS audits during COVID-19 revealed similar corruption and mismanagement of medical resources. In seven neighborhoods, their team has reduced homicides by a method that enables witnesses to testify in court without the fear of being harmed or killed themselves by the perpetrators. Such efforts are critical in a country where the impunity rate for homicides has hovered between 85 and 95% for the last decade. AJS sees this work as a matter of justice. It also conveniently lines up with U.S. foreign policy objectives in the Northern Triangle countries, a region where the majority of foreign aid, Kurt told us, gets funneled out to private sector NGOs, many of them American-run.
4: The embassy programs here have always been, how do we keep people here? What can we do to, to make it better for hundreds to stay here? And the sorts of stuff then that the U.S. government has been funding are things like agriculture programs. How can we help farmers make more money so they don't want to leave? They've been funding health programs. How can we make, uh, you know, kids... The, the, the hospitals work better, the health centers work better so that people feel like the health system works and they don't need to go to the US, uh, the schools better so that they don't leave. And in ASJ's case, we were working on, and we ha- are still working on two issues. One is violence and the other is corruption. And with both of those, uh, the US has funded them because it's good for Honduras, but also the idea is if violence goes down, less people will wanna leave.
1: This strategy seems logical, but for many Americans, it's not as appealing as other tools for managing migration in this volatile region.
5: The Democrat party wants to raise your taxes, restore immediately job-killing regulations. They want to take away and destroy your health care because that's what's going to happen. Impose socialism and totally erase America's borders. How about that caravan? Do you want to let that caravan just pour in? I don't think so.
1: This was a rally in Georgia, two days before the midterm elections in November 2018. A week earlier, President Trump had ordered 5,000 active-duty troops to the U.S.-Mexico border.
5: So we started the wall 1.6 billion dollars another 1.6 billion just approved we're building it in pieces and chunks but I want to build it all at one time in the meantime you saw last week I called up the United States military we're not playing games folks there's nothing because you look at what's marching up. That's an invasion. That's not that's an invasion. And a lot of things happening, you know, ask yourself, how do you think that formed? And did you see the second caravan? And we pay these countries, by the way, Honduras, El Salvador. We pay these countries hundreds of millions of dollars, which, by the way, will be stopping very soon. Okay? They don't do a damn thing. They don't do a damn thing for us. We called up, I asked...
1: Over the next few months, from November 2018 to March 2019, the administration initiated the Remain in Mexico policy, which barred asylum seekers from entering the U.S. while their asylum claim was in process. It also formally ended a program that allowed certain minors in Central America to pursue refugee status without making the dangerous trip to apply in person at the border. Then in late March, President Trump made good on his promise from the Georgia rally. He announced in a tweet and then in a press conference that all aid to Northern Triangle countries would be cut because the governments weren't doing enough to stem migration.
4: What was interesting there is it was not a conditional thing. So what he's done in other countries like China, he said, if we don't get a new trade deal negotiated, we will cut off, or we will in, in, introduce tariffs. In Mexico it was, if you don't fix this, we will shut our southern border. If you don't fix this, we'll impose tariffs. Here, it wasn't a do this or it was just we're going to cut it off.
1: Much like the rapid downsizing of State Department and Homeland Security operations that left refugees who had already been approved for resettlement to the U.S. stranded in places like Turkey in 2017, what happened in the next weeks and months is telling about how a promise made to cheering crowds in the fervor of election season actually trickles down to affect vulnerable groups of people and the organizations that serve them.
4: Kirsten Nielsen, who is head of Homeland Security, was here on the Thursday before he made the, the tweet. And she actually got all three presidents to agree to quite stringent requirements. And so on Thursday, she signed an agreement.
1: To clarify, those are the presidents of Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador.
4: Everybody shook hands and the countries all agreed to do a bunch more stuff to try and stop immigration. And uh, President Trump tweeted this on Friday that he was cutting off all aid and I think on Saturday had the golf course uh, press conference. So that just seems strange, right? They agreed to what the government asked, the U.S. government asked for, and then uh, still cut off the aid. And then Kirsten Nielsen ended up uh, getting fired soon after.
1: For the summer months of 2019, AJS and other organizations began planning emergency budget scenarios, still holding out hope that the aid cuts would be negotiated or walked back.
4: That didn't happen, and the embassy here and the organizations USAID, INL, that were giving out the money to NGOs started announcing that everybody was going to get cut. Uh, We ended up being able to keep money through December, but some nonprofits here have already closed up shop and everybody's gone home, shut down their office.
1: In October 2019, a few weeks before we spoke with Kurt, the U.S. announced some restored flow of assistance to Northern Triangle countries, but only for hard security issues.
4: So things like uh, Homeland Security, uh, for DEA, so stopping drug trafficking, uh, fighting gangs, especially anything with U.S. connections, Uh, will continue in in salaries for those people and budget for them to do those exercises, but that the programs that they had with people like ASJ and World Vision and uh, Compassion, organizations that lots of people know, none of that has restarted and there's no sign that it will happen anytime soon.
1: During the time we visited in mid-November of 2019, AJS had already announced 60 layoffs to their staff of about 140 people. 30 more possible layoffs were pending. They were making plans to shut down a range of programs in at least five neighborhoods across Tegucigalpa and San Pedro Sula. Programs that have made people's homes and communities safer by measurably reducing homicides and providing counsel to families of murder victims. Programs that invest in the next generation by tutoring and mentoring at-risk kids. In the U.S., their organizational counterpart was busy drafting emergency funding appeals to U.S. donors, traveling to D.C. to meet with members of Congress. The Honduran staff members we talked with were gracious. They sat with us, answered our questions, smiled. But you could feel the anger, the sadness, the heartbreak. The work is so beautiful, but it's so complicated, Sandra told us. We can't just end relationships we've built for years. Those relationships aren't just with the kids, it's with their moms, their dads, their grandparents who are raising them. We work with kids who are working instead of going to school, kids whose parents are immigrants in the U.S., kids who are on the cusp of living on the streets. We were chatting the other day and wondering if we leave, who's going to work with these kids? The thing is, working with kids is so delicate. If I worked in a bank and got laid off,
2: I'd leave the spreadsheets and build behind.
1: If I worked at a dry clean, I'd leave it behind. This work, how do you leave kids behind? How? Root causes in countries of origin like Honduras are one end of the migration journey. At the other end are border communities 2,000 miles to the north, places like Puerto de Anapra on the western edge of Ciudad Juarez, Mexico, where I had the opportunity to visit briefly in February 2020, just weeks before the pandemic hit. In front of Comedor Aposento, a church-turned-community-kitchen-turned-housing-shelter for migrant families, a group of Central American kids and their moms passed the heat of the afternoon in the shade. A puppy laid in the dirt beneath a large water tank. Some kids were swinging on a swing set. Others leaned against the wall of the kitchen building, painted with Proverbs 22.6 in Spanish. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. The woman in charge was named Griselle. She took a few minutes from her daily tasks running the place to tell us about her family's ministry.
6: Mi familia llegó aquí Ciudad Juárez, Veracruz.
1: She's lived in Juarez over twenty years, she said. Her family migrating there originally from Veracruz, thirteen hundred miles south on the Gulf Coast.
6: When they showed up, they had very little. It
1: took time to get settled.
6: Eventually, her dad got a job at a
1: community kitchen in Puerto de Anapra.
6: He later started a church and 15 years ago began his own food ministry to support local families. It served about 100
1: kids. At the time, the neighborhood had many houses made of just cardboard and wood. There was a lot of need. Nestled against the 30-foot wall of steel beams dividing the Department of Chihuahua, Mexico, from the U.S. state of New Mexico, Puerto de Napra is still marked with signs of poverty, homes made of cinder block and roofed with tin, no reliable clean water supply. Over the years, Grisel and her family have undertaken initiatives to raise support for children in the community who suffer abuse. They've provided music lessons to kids who couldn't afford it, done gift handouts at Christmas time, In June 2019, when the Remain in Mexico plan took effect in the El Paso region, the neighborhood, along with the rest of Juarez and dozens of other under-resourced Mexican border communities, found itself charged with the task of providing care, food, housing, work, medical support, transportation, for thousands of migrant families. Families like Alexander and his son, who had made the journey five months earlier, crossing the border at the other end of Texas. In short, Remain in Mexico, formerly called Migrant Protection Protocol, or MPP, requires people seeking asylum to stay in border communities like Juarez and report to border facilities for their asylum hearings. Before that, families would enter the U.S., undergo a brief detention and initial asylum screening. If they passed, they were fitted with ankle monitors and released to stay with relatives while awaiting their asylum hearings. Back in February 2020, when I visited, Local groups in Juarez estimated that at the time the city was holding between seven and 10,000 migrants from Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador, Cuba, Nicaragua, as well as countries outside of Central and South America. Currently, 27 people were in Grisel's shelter, although at times they had held up to 120.
6: Tengo Angelica, que ella ya va cumplir un año.
1: One woman from Guatemala had been at the shelter a whole year. Y ella... It's been so hard for her, Grisel told us.
6: She's got a son in
1: Guatemala who she couldn't bring. She's got one of her kids here who's four years old.
6: The
1: one in Guatemala is
6: 11.
1: She cries a lot because she misses him and she couldn't bring him with. She says it's been traumatic having to go to court for her asylum hearings multiple times. She gets her hopes up, thinking each time she'll be able to cross, then she has to return.
0: I mean, I met 17-year-old kids that turned 18 in the shelters that had, like, their brothers shot and killed in front of them and were, like, this close to being forced into joining a gang before they fled. Like, it's some crazy stories. I've seen people, like, wake up in night terrors um, because of the things that they've seen in their lives. A lot of people do not want to leave everything they know and love, to come to a different country that probably is not going to treat them with the same level of respect and love that they had left in the communities back home.
1: This is Blanca Castillo, a shelter coordinator with a ministry called Abara Frontiers just across the border from Grisel and El Paso. Since the summer of 2019, she has worked with about 20 shelters all across Juarez, places that have sprung up since MPP hit. Her team organizes infrastructure projects at the shelters, runs programs like sewing classes and ESL classes for migrant families, coordinates resources between American churches, churches in Juarez, and state-run migrant support efforts in the Department of Chihuahua. The border closed to all but essential travel in March 2020, but her team's work has continued.
0: I'm not going to say that everyone that comes over to the border is going to have like a free pass at like going in, but out of the families that really do come from serious situations persecuted for their faith, nationality, or race, or whatever, um, They have a chance, and it's a very sad, unfortunate, and unjust thing that they won't be able to cross into safety and maybe turn back and sent to their deaths just because there wasn't a lawyer there to
1: represent them. One study in late 2019 found that only about 5% of asylum applicants waiting in Mexico were able to secure legal counsel, compared to 30% who were allowed to enter the U.S., Legal representation is a huge advantage in having any chance to navigate the complex and ever-changing nuances of an asylum case.
0: MPP is like another strategy of like deterrence. I mean, you're basically, what I've been seeing is like, day by day, they just cut down one more lifeline for people. What I see migraine protection protocols is, is pushes people back into unsafe spaces, deters them from seeking the help that they need really limits, like, attorneys or people that really want to do good things from, like, actually reaching these people. Um, And it, like, poses so many, like, issues of, like, human rights and just, like, the, I don't know, treating people with dignity and respect.
1: Remain in Mexico has remained in effect during the pandemic. As of May 2020, about 65,000 people had been returned to Mexico under the program. However, earlier in March, under the direction of the CDC, border patrol officers began immediately expelling anyone who had crossed the border without documentation, bypassing asylum screenings altogether in spite of various international protocols and provisions in U.S. immigration law. Around 70,000 people had been expelled under this order by the end of June 2020. Blanca finished our conversation with a heavy story about one of the families waiting under MPP who she connected with early on in the shelters in Juarez.
0: There's this one woman, I'll call her, um, Sarah, and her little daughter, her little daughter is named Maria. I love Maria. She's like been there literally for the past like eight months now. They, about two months ago, they left the shelter and I never saw them again. And I was like, what happened and everything? And it turns out the mother got desperate and she was trying to find a way to get across because she couldn't like, she just didn't like her daughter being in the shelter that much anymore. And unfortunately she tried to take the route of like a coyote. And what happened was basically they had a very bad streak of luck. The coyote actually like, held them hostage for about like a month. Luckily, nothing happened to her or the little girl, but she was able to escape. And then I saw her back at the shelter again. And this happened right before Christmas. And I brought her to a little Christmas event that we were organizing with the state agency for all the shelters. And I remember sitting down and little Maria was like, just singing and dancing and she was so happy because I was giving her like a little Christmas present. And then she starts like saying like out of the mouth of this innocent little girl is like, yeah, the bad man kidnapped us The madman was gonna do terrible things to us and he was trying to get to me but my mom wouldn't let him. And it really, um, it really shakes you. Um, I guess especially like getting to know people so personally and it really wakes you up to, this is a very serious thing. Like people are, are like risking their lives here, out here for a reason. And we need to one, be better at like comforting those in like the deep of their pain and also just finding more sympathy always stay awake always stay alert to these situations <clears> that are around you um, and be there for people so like for me ever since then like I've been very close to her mom I have been trying to ensure that they'll get into the shelters being more intentional about getting people into programs and getting people away from very harmful, harmful sources um, and I don't know I just it just woke me up to like there is definitely like a war of good and evil everywhere you go and you have to like be alert to these situations it can come in any form so yeah
1: So where does all of this leave us? The path forward for crafting better policies that affect hundreds of thousands of Central Americans in vulnerable situations, people created in God's image and loved by Him with a depth we cannot comprehend, is complicated. Presidential administrations that shift priorities every four or eight years don't always help. One migration scholar, Anthony Fontes, points out that the push factors of migration in Central America, poverty, corruption, violence, are the outgrowth of decades of sustained harmful practices and policies, often ones in which the US was complicit, particularly during the Cold War. Any kind of meaningful change, he says, will require decades of sustained nuanced positive policies. Those types of ideas do exist. As a starting place, I would recommend checking out bipartisanpolicy.org and the Evangelical Immigration Table. Other resources are suggested in the show notes for this episode. I hope at least two things have been clear during this listening experience. First, the faith and moral insight of people on the ground who have seen and felt the human toll of strategies like MPP and cutting foreign aid to the Northern Triangle. Blanca's haunting vision of a little girl at a Christmas party recounting her kidnapping experience while she and her mom waited for their asylum case in Mexico should in itself be enough to make us deeply suspicious of the mentality behind such policies especially those of us who believe that God himself was once embodied on earth as a child under his parents' care as they sought protection from evil in a foreign country. Secondly, I hope that the personhood and nuance of Malvia, Alexander, Sandra, has shown through here at least a little bit. After spending a short time face-to-face with them in their communities, as well as interviewing over a dozen other people on the trip to Honduras, it became clear to me that I need to add a list of questions to the ones I typically ask when thinking about asylum seekers and economic migrants in that region of the world. I need to ask things like this. How would it feel to send my kids to a school where 25% of the teachers who were paid with my tax money didn't even show up to teach their classes? How would it feel to work as hard as I can and barely cover my family's living expenses while my neighbors are earning five times as much in a nearby country and sending back money so their kids could go to a good school. How would it feel if the community I live in and love was also one where organized criminals charged me a tax each month, where neighbors who started businesses and made good, honest money got robbed and murdered, and no justice was served because everyone was too terrified to speak up? I hope you'll add these types of questions to your list as well and that these episodes would spur you on, as Alexander urged us at the outset, to learn more and consider prayerfully how your preferred candidate's policies will affect people and communities like the ones we've visited in these episodes. Another action you can take is supporting organizations like AJS in Honduras. You can find them at ajs.us.org. And Abara Frontiers in El Paso. You can find them at abarafrontiers.org. A quick note on AJS before we finish. Thanks largely to individual U.S. donors, AJS didn't have to cut as deeply as they thought they would in 2019. But they still had to let 45 staff go, and they began phasing out strong communities programs in two neighborhoods. In April of 2020, the State Department announced an unspecified amount of renewed aid to Central America. As of September 2020, AJS was still uncertain how much of that money would be available for their programs. Thanks for listening to Beyond Soundbites. Please stay tuned for more episodes to come. Beyond Soundbites is created in collaboration with the Refugee Highway Partnership North America, a network of churches, ministries, and individuals supporting refugees and asylum seekers across the U.S. and Canada. Other organizational supporters include the Refugee Language Program, Exodus World Service, Tucson Refugee Ministry, Local Community Partners, Abounding Service, and World Relief. Alana Murphy served as the interpreter and project advisor during the Honduras trip, Comfort Sampong of AJS helped us connect with interviewees, as did Arturo Venegas, who hosted us and drove us around. Thanks also to Blanca Castillo, Gustavo de los Rios, and the rest of the Ibarra team for hosting, teaching, and offering translation support in El Paso and Juarez. Judith Still provided translation support on this episode. Karen Gonzalez and Matt Sorens provided content direction. Hannah Bonifacius and Caprice Applequist offered editorial guidance for this episode. John and Valerie Garrett created the theme music. The rest of the songs are by Chris Dingman. This episode was mixed by Matt McQueen at Gem City Studios in Tennessee.